Daniel chapter 10. We are going to be reading all of 10, and we are going to sneak just barely into chapter 11, and we're going to read verse 11, 1 as well. But before we read, <clears throat> there are a couple of things that we need to know about this passage before we get into it, just things that are going to help us as we uh, seek to understand what it is we are reading. The first is pretty simple. Unlike Daniel's chapter 1 through 9, where each chapter is kind of its own unit, its own section, each is a, a story with a beginning and end, Daniel chapter 10 is just the beginning of the final section of the book. So when we read chapter 10, we're actually reading one-third of the last section of the entire book, which is 10, 11, and 12. <clears throat> chapter 10 is just a, it's an introduction to this vision that Daniel is going to get in chapter 11, and then chapter 12 is, is both the conclusion of the vision and the conclusion of the book. So that's the first thing we need to know. The second thing, it is helpful for us to kind of figure out what is going on with Daniel. <clears throat> if we look at verse 3, we're going to see that Daniel is mourning. He is grieving. He is somewhat fasting. He's not completely cutting out food. But he is, he's denying himself. Something is going on with Daniel that is causing him to seek the Lord in prayer. Now, Daniel doesn't come out right and tell us, and we honestly, we need to be a little careful because a lot of times the Bible leaves out details, and we, need, we don't need to make up details. We don't need to go searching for them. We just need to be okay that the Bible doesn't give us the details. However, in this case, I think the Bible does give us, give us the details, but we need to do a little digging and a little searching to figure out what exactly is going on. <clears throat> and so if we look... Daniel chapter 10, we see uh, Daniel is mourning, he's grieving, he's seeking the Lord. And then later we'll see, as this angel comes and talks to him, that Daniel has been concerned for his people, for the people of Judah. And if we, even if we look at the, the chapter before, chapter 9, and then to the rest of the book, we see Daniel's chief concern. It's not himself, it's not something that's going on with him. It's what's going on with God and his people. And so if we need to figure out what's going on with them, we just have to do a little bit of broadening, looking outside of the book of Daniel. Uh, first, we need to just look at verse 1, and we see that wh where we are in history is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And if we look outside of this particular instance in Scripture and look at what the Bible says about Cyrus, we know Cyrus was actually prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, and in the book of Ezra, we find that Cyrus, in his first year of, as being king, makes a proclamation that the people of Judah, the survivors of the exile, are to go back to Jerusalem, and they are to rebuild the temple of the Lord. <clears throat> good news. But the news doesn't stay quite good. And in Ezra chapter 4, we read that the, the exiles who have returned to the land who are trying to rebuild the temple things are not just going smoothly. In fact, they're facing severe opposition. There are officials who are being bribed, and so by the time of the third year of Cyrus the king, things are not going well for the exiles and their return. In fact, at some point during 
this uh, time of the return of the exiles, the construction of the temple will cease for 15 years. So we don't know where specifically in the course of these events the third year of Cyrus is, but we know Daniel is aware of what's going on with his people and things are not good and he is seeking the Lord because of it. The last thing that we need to look at is, uh, and this is a, li- a bit less important, but it, it helps us as we're reading the chapter. There's a lot of debate among scholars about who in the world are we talking about when we read verses 4 through 9. Who is Daniel seeing? Now, I think there are, there, are, there are two positions that remain faithful to Scripture. One of them is true. We don't really know which one is true. Uh, but I think we can get the whole meaning of the text and hold to either one of these two positions. The first position is that the, the figure that Daniel sees in verses 4 through 9 is the pre-incarnate or the pre-birth of Christ, Son of God. So this is the second person of the Trinity. Daniel's receiving a vision of him, and it is great and it is glorious. It's actually very similar uh, the description is very similar to what John sees in Revelation 1. But what is the, the thing about this that we need to know is if that is the case and that is the person that he is seeing, then when Daniel interacts with someone later, it's not that same figure, but it's an angelic person, an angelic figure who's speaking with him later. The other way to uh, faithfully interpret the text, and I, I think is, uh, this was, would be what I lean towards, is that this figure that he sees in 4 through 9 is an angelic figure. It is a very powerful figure, and it is reflecting the glory of God in its own self. Just like Moses, when he was in the presence of God, his face afterwards shone. So if this is an angel, his angel who ministers in the presence of God is reflecting some of the glory of God. Those are the three things that we need to know as we approach this text, things that are going to help us as we seek to understand what message God has for us this morning. Let's read the text together now. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. 
Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days." For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray together. Father God, I just pray that you would be with us this morning. Father, would you open our hearts to hear your word? Father, would you help us to understand? And Father, would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would your word be powerful this morning to us? Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would get behind the cross, and that your words would be heard and not my own. Father, be with us this morning as we dig into your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we look at this text, there are three things that we're going to look at, three things that that we need to remember and take away from this text. The first is that spiritual warfare is real. The second thing we need to know is we need to know our part in the battle. And then the last thing, probably the most important thing, we need to know that we are not the hero. Spiritual warfare is real. Our first point. Do you guys remember when coughing in public was okay? You could cough in public and not think a thing of it about two years ago. Um, But... Now, we cough in public and we immediately first start wondering what other people are thinking about us, or two, we're wondering what's going on with us and we get worried about ourselves, or three, probably the best thing that we do is we start getting concerned for those around us. 
Now, we are not worried about what other people are thinking of us because coughing in public is the most socially embarrassing thing we can do. We're not worried about our own health because we think our coughs are so violent that we're literally going to hack a lung up. Nor are we concerned for others because we think our coughs are so powerful that we're going to blow somebody's hair off. That's not the reason that we are concerned. We are concerned because now in our world more than ever, we realize that a cough could just be a symptom of something that's going on unseen within our own bodies. We realize that there could be a battle going on within us between a virus and between our own immune systems. And so while a, a doctor may be able to see those with peeking through a microscope, we cannot, and so we're concerned about it. Well, what Daniel is getting in this passage is a peek behind the microscope, but the battle is not within his own body. There is a battle that is raging, a spiritual battle between the spiritual forces of good, the spiritual forces aligned with God, and then the spiritual forces of evil aligned with the devil. And Daniel is getting a peek behind the curtain. Daniel realizes what he sees. He sees that the people of God are going back. They're going back as, as they were told they were going to back. They're going to rebuild the temple so that worship of God as he commanded in the law is going to be resumed. They are going back to do the will of God and yet they are facing resistance. That's what Daniel sees and Daniel's grieved and he's praying over it. And what the vision reveals to him is that something else is going on behind the scenes, not just the political will of officials and rulers and, and things of that nature of the, of the earthly realm. No, the angel tells him, if you look in verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now, when Daniel is talking about princes there, he's not talking about earthly rulers or earthly kingdoms. He is talking about spiritual forces that are working behind the scenes that are having a real effect on what is happening in the world. And so Daniel is getting a peek and seeing that what he is seeing is not just the result of political forces, but it is the work of the forces of evil. We need to realize that we're talking about angels and demons here, and we are not talking about a fantasy novel or a sci-fi story. The vast, all of scripture reveals to us that there is more in God's creation than just what is here. There is a spiritual reality where there are angels, God's servants who he has created to serve him, and they serve him in his presence, but there are also those who have rebelled against him, Satan and his demons, and they are vastly opposed to what God does in this world and in his people. We need to be aware of that. We need to realize we're in the fight, and we also need to realize that God and his people are in the crosshairs. We are the target. Here, Daniel is seeing how the people Israel is the target, but we today are the church. We are the people of God, and there are forces at work that oppose us. Here's another thing that we need to remember. 
that Daniel needed to remember. You see, Daniel, maybe the people of Israel, as they're facing this opposition, maybe they're, they're starting to think, oh, if, if the kingdom of Persia would just go away, if that, would just, if that kingdom would end, then we wouldn't have any difficulties anymore. Then we could serve God as he wants us to, and everything would be smooth sailing. But look at verse 20. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to get, fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. As we learn next week about chapter 11, when Greece comes in power, things are not smooth for the people of God. For us, we need to realize that the change from one political power to the next, no matter where it is, is not a guarantee that the fight is over. We don't have the luxury of being able to kick up our feet just because a vote goes our way. Satan doesn't care about those votes. Satan is adamantly opposed that God's people be taken down and he's going to keep working no matter who is in power, no matter where they are. We as God's people can't let down our guard. 1 Peter 5, Peter tells us we need, we need to be warned. We need to keep a watch out because our devil is a roaring and prowling lion. He's seeking someone to devour. And he's doing that from Genesis 3 until when Jesus comes back. We also need to know that you know, we, don't, we don't specifically know how the, the inner workings of how Satan and the demons are influencing but we do know this, the devil's influence isn't an excuse for any of us to sin. We all know that. None of us can say, the devil made me do it. The devil's influence is real. The devil's influence is powerful, but we are all still, whether we are in Christ or without, we are responsible for our own actions. Again, we need to realize there is a spiritual battle, and it is real. But we also need to know our part in the battle. So Daniel, first of all, when he starts praying, he's not even aware of what's going on behind the scenes. Daniel, as he is seeing what's going on, he's aware of what's happening to God's people in another part of the world. And what does he do? First of all, let's look at this real quick. Everybody just scan through this chapter and look at what Daniel's doing. Now remember, Daniel is somebody who is not a political nobody. He's been the right-hand person of kings. And yet, what does he do when he sees that his people are suffering in the land? Does anybody see on here where he gets on Facebook and reams the political leaders over the coals for what they're doing? He's not doing that. He's not being mean-spirited to anyone. What he does is he sees that there is something going on. It is grieving him. It is something that is very specifically against the will of God, and he is grieved. And so instead of just going and trying to fix things himself, he gets on his knees in front of the one who is sovereign over everything. Daniel was praying Daniel was praying, he was going before God and pleading with God, praying for understanding, praying for God to help him know 
why it was that his people were suffering. So here's what we need to know from that. Daniel is not even praying specifically against the spiritual forces of evil. He's just praying to God to help him to understand and that God's will will be done. You know, we, uh, there's, we have this real tendency in our culture to either completely ignore the fact that there is spiritual warfare going on, or we have the fact where we start reading Frank Peretti novels and we take it way too seriously. Daniel wasn't doing it either. He wasn't over this is a big word, over sensationalizing the problem, but he wasn't ignoring the problem either. And here's another thing that we need, just a kind of a little side note. Let's remember that Daniel is in his 80s at this point. He's had a long life of, of service to uh, the political powers that be. He's not kicking up his feet in retirement. He is actively praying and actively seeking God and his face for, for the things that are going on. And I got to tell you, I've, I've talked with many of you and I've seen grief on the faces of some of you who have talked to me and said, I just don't know what I can do for the church anymore. You may not have the same strength that you used to. You may not be able to go into the nursery and chase wild three-year-olds anymore. But can I tell you, Daniel is a great example for what we can do when we are more senior saints. We can pray. We can pray. Y'all hear me. If you feel like you can't do anything for the church, this is what you can do. And honestly, for the younger saints who maybe we can do stuff with our hands, this is what we should do too. We don't need to trust in our own strength and our own abilities. We need to get on our knees before the one who does have the strength. We can't do it on our own. This is the work of the ministry. And so I want to very, very quickly, very practically, I want to give us all an opportunity. This Thursday night, we've got a, we've got a dinner that we're going to have. We're going to enjoy each other's company. That's going to be from 5 to 6.30. Come to that. But at 6.30, Nathan and I are going to come in here. We've got a big, we got big stuff happening in our church, and we've got a big job to bring the gospel to this community, and we can't do it on our own. So Nathan and I are going to be in here. We're going to be on our knees. We're going to be praying, and I invite you guys to come and join us at 630. That is our part in the battle. We aren't demon hunters, folks. We don't have, Daniel's not taking up a sword. He's not raking anybody over the coals. He's just praying. That's what we need to do. And, and one final thing. We know from, from this passage, from what's going on in the world when Daniel's writing this, there are, there are real living people that are being influenced. If we go over to Ezra, we see that there are real people who are opposing the work of God. Can we remember really quickly what Jesus tells us to do about our enemies. He doesn't tell us to be mean to them. He doesn't tell us to insult everything that they do. He doesn't tell us to hate them. No, he tells us to love them. And I feel that I and maybe all of us have failed at doing that. How many people who may be across the political aisle from us can say that they know that we love them. 
Now, I'm just super convicted about that for me because I don't know many. We need to do what Jesus told us. And, and even when people are vastly opposed to us, we don't have to agree with what they think is right, but we are called to love them. We are commanded to love them, and that is what we should do. Well, that's our part in the battle. The last thing that we need to know is we are not the hero. The human being that we see in this passage is Daniel. And before we say this, let's, let's just throw it out there. Daniel's not a coward. Have we, have we read the rest of, of the book of Daniel? Daniel has gotten up in front of kings and told them the truth, even when telling them the truth probably could have lost him his life. He defied unjust commands from a king to not pray to the Lord God, knowing that him praying could have resulted in him being torn apart by lions. Daniel is not a coward, and yet he is most certainly not the hero in this story Look at how it describes Daniel. So I was left alone, verse six. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Go down in uh, verse um, 15. It says, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Daniel is not the hero because Daniel is scared to death. He doesn't have any strength in and of himself to deal with this vision, to deal with what he's hearing, to deal with what he's seeing. And if Daniel doesn't have the strength, then we most certainly don't think, we shouldn't think we have the strength either. We aren't the hero, but God is the hero. You know, when we see this, this uh, we read about this vision of this person, this, maybe it's, Maybe it's God the Son, maybe it's just a really powerful angel. Regardless, this being is communicating something to us of God, and he is bright, and he is powerful, and he is holy. That, that being clothed in linen is a picture of holiness. And everything that we see, all this description, Daniel's just trying to wrap his mind around how bright and how powerful and how mighty this creature is. And it's talking to us, it's communicating to us that God is holy, God is terrible and glorious in his power. He is not a God to be trifled with. He is not just this Santa Claus figure in the sky who's just handing out gifts here and there. No, God is holy and God is worthy of all of our praise and our worship. It reminds me of uh, just a, a series of quotes from the, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis where uh, uh, Aslan, who is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, figure of God who's representing God for him, this is what it says about him. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God is not safe, but he is good. He is holy, and he is mighty in power, and he is the hero of the story. He is the hero of the spiritual war that is going on around us. This is what we see, and this is, this is one of the reasons that 
when we look at the, the second part of this vision where he has someone communicating, this is why we can't really think that, that this uh, second person who may be talking or if it's just the angel before, why it's not Jesus. When, when this person says that the chief of the prince of Persia withstood him for 21 days, that's definitely not Jesus because when we get into the New Testament, what happens when Jesus and demons get in the same place? Jesus commands demons to come out, they come out. Jesus commands that they be silent and they spoke no more. Jesus commands that they go and they went. The demon possessed did not resist Jesus, but they came and they fell at his feet. Charles Spurgeon says this about, about Jesus. Christ has never tolerated any truce or parley with the evil one and never will. Whenever Christ strikes a blow at Satan, it is a real blow and not a faint. And it is meant to destroy, not to amend he never asks Satan's help to subdue Satan, never fights evil by evil. He uses the weapons which are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And he uses them ever with this intention, not to dally with Satan, but to cut up his empire's root and branch. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. There is a deadly, implacable, infinite, eternal hatred between Christ and that sin of which Satan is representative. No compromise can ever be thought of. No quarter will ever be allowed. The Lord will never turn from his purpose to bruise Satan under his feet and to cast him into the lake of fire. Our Jesus, our Savior, is the hero of this battle. Of that there can be no debate. And that is one reason why we are not the hero. Here's another reason that we aren't the hero. And this is less fun to talk about. But some of us may not be the hero in this room because some of us aren't even on the right side of the battle. The Bible is pretty clear. There's no neutral ground in this war. There are no innocent bystanders. There is none who can be considered an innocent casualty of this war. Every single one of us, if we haven't been washed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we are sinners. We are dead in our sin and our trespasses. We are at enmity with God. If we are not actively trusting and relying on Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection, then we are on the wrong side of this battle. And folks, the consequences for that are serious. They are dire. For while we, if we are trusting in Christ, we one day may get to go and live with him and be with him forever. And Daniel 12 is gonna give us some good information about that. So hold on. But if we are not, if we aren't, washed in the blood of Jesus, if we are not made clean by his sacrifice on the cross and by faith in him. And the Bible says that Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And guys, that, that results in us spending eternity not with Jesus, but apart from him. Enduring the punishment that we justly deserve for our sins forever in hell. Now that's bad news. It's true news, but it's bad news. But here's the good news. 
Jesus, the hero, saves his enemies. The Bible doesn't say in Romans 5 that, that Jesus came to, to win over the morally neutral. He didn't come to save those who were doing pretty good. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So let me tell you, if you are on the wrong side of the battle, you don't have to stay there. Look to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Believe in what the Bible says about him, that he lived, he died, on, and was resurrected after the third day. Believe that is true. Trust in him. Surrender your life to him, and you'll be on the right side because of what he has done, not because of anything you can do. And let me give us some hope as we close. Jesus, the hero, will defeat every bit of the spiritual forces of darkness one day. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them all with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done, many, had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Jesus is going to win, folks. Amen. His, Satan's doom is sure, as we just sang, Another pastor preaching on this said it was checkmate at the cross. We need to put our faith and trust in Jesus because he is the one who will be victorious in the end. Let's pray.